All right, so this week I am taking a deep dive into literary analysis, talking about not just the products that I have in my store, but the philosophy behind them and how they're created and what I'm thinking about when I put together a literary analysis assignment. So let's get into it. Welcome to Anti-Burnout for English Teachers. I'm Danielle Hicks, and I am your host. I will be in this podcast going over tips and strategies to avoid burnout. Being an English teacher is so tough, and we really need to join together and figure out ways that we can continue to build a great English classroom and also not feel depleted by the end of the year. So let's go. couple years back, I was doing a professional development where I was working on curriculum for my county. And our curriculum specialist brought in some students from the school that we was hosting us. And it was the the brightest of the bright. They were true lovers of English. They were the ones that were on the writing center uh, staff. They took the English electives. They took AP Lang and AP Lit. And one of the things that they said really struck a chord with all of us, I think. One of these students said that they really loved English. And they were good at other classes too. And they took a lot of AP classes. But in English class, they said that it always felt so random. And they posed it in a way that made it sound like they thought that that was great. (laughs) But the teachers in the room were kind of like, wait a second, is that really what we want? Because what she said was, one day you'd be doing grammar, one day you'd be watching a film, one day you'd be analyzing literature, one day you would be looking at a graphic novel, Another day, you would be back to the grammar. Um, You might be looking at sentence structure and syntax. The next day, you're looking at diction. And for her, it just didn't feel like it all... She loved all of it, right? But it just felt, as she said, so random. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I asked Instagram the other day, what I should focus on. And in a landslide, people suggested that I talk about and um, work on materials related to literary analysis. So I've been thinking about it. And what I guess the story that I just told me doesn't fit so well with what I am now going into, but it, it, it will tie together please trust me. Um, so let's, let's go back a little bit. Last year I did this assignment where I was asking my students to do a, uh, what's it called? A video essay. So to give them a model, I went to my favorite video essayist, which is Evan Pushak. 
nerd writer one and as i was looking back at some of the videos that i really enjoyed the video essays by evan pushak i came i i did a um google search as well and i found this kind of old now you uh, ted talk where he is talking about his creation of video essay. So it was perfect for what I was doing in my class, like how he actually constructs his video essays and what goes into that. But he structured it in a way that he was actually looking at the video essay as a form in itself. And this was something that was really interesting to me because I feel like, and, and I got into this a little bit when I was talking about how I changed my podcast episode or my podcast assignment, because I I think that a lot of what I've been doing has been taking an essay and then just switching it into a different medium without really considering how it changes with the medium. So this TED Talk, he's really talking about what makes video essays different from a traditional essay. But before he gets into that, he talked about the history of really the English discipline and how we got here to the point where we were making video essays. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting is he said when when we were in the early stages of determining like how we're going to structure universities in a liberal arts education and what departments had which like what they were responsible for English was greedy and also English was very closely tied to law which makes a lot of sense you think about our language like we have claims and evidence um, analysis but it all really makes sense to me related to what happens in court. And I, I do often when I'm trying to explain to students what we're doing when we're doing litter analysis, I'll use some of those language. Like I'll talk about, okay, let's think about what we do when we are in court because they have a familiarity with court dramas mostly, or um, most students have some kind of understanding of the way that court works, at least in a basic sense. So making that parallel is really easy for them. But so we have, so English is greedy. So we have so much under our umbrella. We have all types of mediums, right? We have poetry, we have short stories, graphic novels, film, nonfiction. We even claim images as analysis. We also have just understanding what you read. So comprehension, right? So we have comprehension and also the analysis. We have like fancy analysis. So we have like literary criticism, all those theories. We also have um, everything that has to do with writing. So we have like the mechanics of writing. And then we also have the craft of writing. And then we have different types of writing. We have creative writing. We have reflective writing. We have that metacognition and writing. We have, you know, nonfiction and fiction. We have everything. Um, I'm probably forgetting other things that fall under the umbrella of English. Um, but it gives that just 
we have so much that we're doing and those the way that you look at and approach each of these different types of or these skills is very different and if we think about this in comparison like going back to that student that said that English seems so random you go back to like what do their other classes look like and I'm not knocking other classes at all I was I loved math and science uh, when I was in high school and even in college but you think about algebra what do you do in algebra you're going to be looking at some formulas. You're going to be looking at variables. You're going to have a linear progression of complexity. So you have like, if you're just going to think about this simply, you'll have start with maybe x equals one. Then you might add addition. So x plus one equals two. Then you might say multiplication two x plus one equals three. Maybe you're going to add um, two x squared plus one equals three. Then maybe you're going to talk about square roots the square root of x plus 1 equals 2. So you've, you have this progression, which is very linear and makes a lot of sense for students. And I think when students say that they like the way that math has a right answer, I think they're also speaking to that fact that they know what to expect when they go into math class. You know, it's not like a surprise that they're going to now be, um, I don't know, doing chemistry. They're not going to be like going into algebra and then they're going to start like, I don't know, <laughs> drawing atoms. I don't know. So it's, um, it all makes a lot of sense to them in the way that English is more like, I wouldn't say that English is disjointed, but thinking about it from a student perspective, I can understand why they don't see how everything fits together and what the big picture is, especially if they get stuck at one of those more basic, like if they are stuck at comprehension, understanding how all the other fancy things that we put with it, um, how that works is more challenging for them. So what I really think about when I am teaching literary analysis, actually there's, before we get into that, so we, we think about our, our discipline, what we have to teach, all of us, has, like, it spans so much we are responsible for the mechanics, the craft, the writing, the interpreting, the, comp the you know, like the comprehension, like every little piece is in our domain, right? So there was this early professor named George Gordon. He was a professor at Oxford in the early 19th century. And he said, literature serves a triple function to delight and instruct us but also and above all to save our souls and heal the state so we have also right with the entertainment factor so it's a little confusing i always think it's like i've been thinking it's kind of funny right that we say we want students to enjoy reading and also, we want for them to understand how reading instructs us 
and also see the value from a human perspective and how it supports our empathy and our um, support of society. So even in the like function of what we're teaching them, there are so many facets that it can be really hard to wrap your brain around it at any given moment. So I think the, the more that we can be explicit about what piece of English we are tackling that day and also be cognizant of the fact that like even though we are going to put all of this together in the later stages, as much as we can break down and say, okay, today we're going to focus on mechanics. Like we're not going to talk about mechanics and also ask you to talk about how this is saving our souls in healing the state. So we're able to look at the piece and use those as building blocks instead of asking students to do everything all at the same time. A strategy that I've used, and I don't really feel like much is lost by doing this after doing it for many years, is really focusing on a few things. So I say when my students leave my class that they are going to understand four literary devices really well. I don't really go into a lot of the other ones in a, in a very sophisticated way. Um, unless they're ready for it. So I'll say what we really are going to make sure that you understand and are able to work with is similes and metaphors. I talk about this together as my four. Personification, diction, and juxtaposition. And I chose these because I feel like it covers the ways that we approach analysis in different ways. So you have like the similes and metaphors where you're thinking conceptually, you have the diction with the word choice, like how um, the flavor of the word affects the meaning. And then we have um, personification. And, and really, I would put personification in the same like bucket as similes and metaphors, but I think that it's easy for students to identify personification. So it's like a quick win. And then juxtaposition, we're thinking spatially about the text as well. So it covers just a couple different domains. But these, I think, are the most accessible of the literary devices that they might be looking at. So these four, the way that I frame this in my classroom is once they've identified these four, and this is also why I've chosen these four, um, and not other ones, because once you've identified them, they are pretty concrete, meaning that people are not going to be like, no, that's not a simile or that's not a metaphor. Um, I guess there are situations where people might say that, but where um, for the most part, it's something that is once you've identified it, that's not what you're going to argue. You're not going to argue that there's juxtaposition there. So that's one piece of the analysis pie, right? And then we take those, the juxtaposition, the similes and metaphors, the diction, the personification, and then we're going to say something about that that's bigger. 
And we have three things, or I have three things that I might have them look at. Mostly. So we have theme, mood, and tone. So theme is what I'm going to most often have my students looking at because they have trouble with it. So I think the more times that they can work with theme, the better they will be as English students. And when I'm talking about theme, I am team statement for theme. And I have reasons. So the way that I, the language that I use is I'll say thematic concept, which would be like one word or possibly a phrase versus a thematic statement, which would have a subject and a predicate. But I'm theme thematic statement because I think that that is what helps students to analyze better when they have a full statement that they're working with. Because if you have, let's say, um, a thematic concept, which would be maybe familial ties, right? So that could lead to a lot of identification. So there's a familial tie, there's a familial tie, you know, we're like, you know, watching Oprah. As opposed to a thematic statement where they're saying something about the importance of familial ties, like um, familial ties are the strongest of bonds. It takes longer for them to break and easiest for them to mend. I don't know. So that's like a thematic statement and that gives them much more meat to work with. And I think when we have a thematic statement, it makes it harder for them to fail. So if they're saying, how does this um, simile relate to familial ties, they could be like, talk about it very simply. But if they're trying to connect it to that thematic statement, then it makes a more complex statement to begin with, you know, a more complex analysis. So I take that, you know, thing that is not very arguable and using it to uh, explain their own unique individual thinking. So that, there we are. So at, at, its, at its heart, that is what I'm trying to get students to do when we are doing literary analysis. And if I, going back to that algebra situation, if my students have mastered juxtaposition, similes and metaphors, diction, and personification, I might add a different literary device. So that's the way that I'm structuring this as far as the scaffolding and the enrichment. Once they've gotten that, I'll add something else. I don't know, maybe symbolism. Um, and then... I can also add a variable, maybe, maybe it would be two, maybe they'll, they're going to add dialogue or something, you know, they'll add something that adds a variable to this whole like thesis that they're developing, or maybe it would be, I ask them to make a more complex thematic statement, but in general, what they're doing is explaining how that one concrete thing goes to their 
like something that's more implicit there. Explicit is going to explain something more implicit. So that's one way that I work on the differentiation for students. Another is really thinking about what part I'm working on. So we have comprehension, we have um, that identification of literary devices, we have the interpretation or the um, explanation of the literary device, then we have how that the analysis and then a synthesis of ideas, like looking for patterns. And I, it's a little crazy to me now that I think about it. But when I first started teaching, I would often give them the whole novel and maybe give them very little direction about what to look for as they're reading. Maybe I gave them a concept. Maybe I gave them five but there's so much to find in our texts, right? So not really giving them a direction means that for some students that don't already have a schema for how to analyze and how to find patterns, it could be very challenging. So I think giving students those um, ways of finding patterns and doing it and maybe either either doing it in small chunks like giving students like I'm gonna pick me I'm the teacher me as a teacher I'm going to choose four to five passages that I think students are going to be able to really understand the meat of the story of course they're not going to understand it at the level that I will understand it having read it like 16 times as I teach it and talking to my, you know, hundreds of students each year, or not hundreds, hundred plus students each year. Um, so they're not going to get that level, but if I do give them enough that every student that has been paying attention can get something out of it, and move on, then I've separated the comprehension or the practice of reading to from the writing. And I, I really think that's important because we, we can't, like, if we can separate the different skills that we're asking students to do, I think that that helps students to, A, feel successful, but B, understand that our class isn't as random because they're able to put together those those big ideas that we're wanting them to work towards. So thinking small or smaller. So thinking small in both the scope of what we're asking students to do at the basic. And remember, like if you have students that can move do more, then then they can when you've designed your curriculum in this way. So students that can move beyond those passages that you're giving them as a class because you've said, okay, read. Um, 
they'll 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 do more you know they'll have more to pull from they'll have stronger ideas they they'll be pulling um their own context and 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 ideas and the way they've brought their own being into the the reading um those more skilled readers will do that but you've made it so that you're everything is scaffolded for those students that are not ready for that and then also by making like kind of focusing on small passages you have students read and reread and I think that's really a key to have students read over and over the things that are important for them to understand and each time picking up something different like bringing students back to those ideas I think of it a little bit like a a magnet or something so like you have that magnet of idea that you want students to come to and you keep like drawing them to that magnet and um when you do this the students think about how many times you have to repeat yourself (laughs) right like how many times do you have to repeat how to do something anything like okay and and then on the other hand you're gonna say to students when they're coming up with this assignment that's supposed to be this big like you know literary analysis essay you're just gonna run through things once and get everything like synthesize it and put it all together and so I think repeating and rereading giving kind of like tricking them into reading over and over again like I always um when I'm having students close read I'll have them like just I like having them maybe five in a a group one student will be looking at one specific area uh one specific skill or maybe you know I'm gonna be looking at uh juxtaposition and you know taking some notes on that and then reading the same passage and then like, okay, now you're going to be looking at similes and metaphors or, you know, whatever. So that you're, you're kind of like tricking the student into reading or not. It's not really a trick because they get it, but they're not going to do that on their own. Like if you're like, okay, read it five times and see what you get. Like that's not going to happen. But, um, and, and I've talked about this before, like gatekeeping the assignment a little bit. I don't know if this is the right word to use, but Maybe. Yeah, I guess it's gatekeeping. So you want to say, I'm only going to give you this part right now so that you have to go back and do the, the next part. And I, I know that for some students, they'd be like, why didn't, didn't you just give me all five things and then I could do it at once? But that means that they would have a more shallow understanding of it because they would have been looking at it all at once instead of looking at it five different times with different eyes. Okay, so thinking small and then really trying to separate the reading comprehension from the analysis. So as much as possible, helping students to get to a basic of what actually happened. And I don't know, I think it's, I've, my, my thinking or my approach has changed because I think like you can't really do the analysis, right? Unless you understand what you've read. And kind of penalizing students for not understanding and then doing a second uh, penalization because they can't analyze is not really fair. So if it's something that you're concerned about or I'm concerned about and students are not doing or when they're doing 
um, a text analysis, I want to first make sure that they comprehend it. It seems basic when it's coming out of my mouth, but I think it's easy to skip that because like how if we're going to really say, okay, like, did you understand this whole entire novel and understand the intricacies? And I think that's where we have to say, like, what is going to be good enough for everybody? And then really dig into those smaller pieces that you want students to understand um, and and help them to make those, to identify those patterns. I think also, I think, I, I don't know if this will be true when people listen to this months from now, certainly not years from now, but if we are looking at smaller sections and asking students to do some specific kinds of analysis or tasks with those small sections, then it makes it so that it is more challenging for ChatGPT to generate something. So I'd say looking at really small sections, thinking about what skills, what stage of reading we want students to be working in, and then really looking at that small identification, like that juxtaposition, the personification, and then going toward the explanation and finding patterns. So analyzing from small to large. So that was all that I wanted to talk about today. That's a lot of big ideas. And if you'd like to see more about how I've structured this, then please check out my materials for literary analysis in my TPT store. And I am happy to ask to to answer any questions. I love talking about this. So if you have any strategies that work with this or maybe don't work with this and and want to kind of talk through because um it could kind of broaden both of our understandings I would be really happy to talk with you and you can send me a message at English Classroom Architect over at Instagram and until next time I will see you later I hope you have a great week